Hey everybody, welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of October 5th, 2019. This is Charles Hain. I'm George Edelman. And I'm Jordan Pacheco. And we are going to be talking about the new Scorsese Netflix production, The Irishman. We're going to be talking about the end of indie icon Distriber. We're going to be talking about tech news that is such non-news that it's news. And we've got all that and a fun Ask No Film School about books this week on the No Film School podcast. (laughs) All right, so our top story this week, I mean, this is a movie that everybody within film nerddom has been talking about for quite a while. And we had, a, we had a trailer come out. We're starting to see the press roll out for this. And that is The Irishman, adapted from the book I Hear You Paint Houses. Uh, it is the new movie from Scorsese. It is Scorsese's first collaboration with Al Pacino, which is shocking. Surprise. Like, it, doesn't it just seem like they should have worked together at some point already? That can't be right. That can't yeah, be right, Yeah, no, surely. it's crazy. Yeah. It is... Uh... It is true. Well, it's also like I was in high school when Heat came out and all of the marketing was like De Niro, Pacino, after 25 years, finally together. And it's like that was Mm -hmm. 25 years ago. Like (laughs) De Niro and Pacino have, you know, uh, have been working together for more than two decades. Um, I I guess, you know, things just don't always work out the way we think they're going to. Um, but now we have Pacino and Scorsese collaborating on The Irishman. There's a lot of interesting stuff to talk about with The Irishman, one of which is that th- the film is heavily digitally de-aged, uh, meaning, you know, this is a... The actors a, are de-aged. The film is... Is not de-aged. It's aged, actually, probably in certain places to, to, to recreate certain historical film yes. looks. But it is, you know, it is shot with actors in their 70s, and digital techniques... So there's two trailers out right now. This and Gemini Man. I mean, I say right now as if trailers go away. Like once a trailer's out, it's out forever. But there's two there's two trailers in the conversation right now, Gemini Man and The Irishman, both of which heavily feature digitally de-aging. Both of them take advantage of the fact that the actors that are de-aging are actors that we have a tremendous visual archive of. Like Will Smith has been famous mm-hmm. since he was 18. We have tremendous... Uh, visual data of what Will Smith looked like from 18 to 23. We have all those hours and hours and hours and hours of French Prince of Bel-Air. So all of that data is there to recreate a younger Will Smith. Although, honestly, I have to say with Gemini Man, I sometimes found myself like older Will Smith doesn't look that old. Like he takes really good care of himself. He clearly has a skincare routine and a workout routine. So like when they were cutting back and forth from older to younger, it wasn't like that dramatic like older will smith still looks great but the irishman we've got the (laughs) same thing with younger de niro younger pacino uh intercut with current day pacino and current day de niro and uh it's really interesting to see the two different approaches and honestly i have to say i'm gonna go out on a limb i'm not a fan i'm a big lee fan I am not a fan of his obsession with 120 frame per second capture that creates this like weird soap opera aesthetic. He thinks it's the future aesthetic. He thinks all movies are going this direction. He's headed towards the future. I, 
I miss the way his movies used to look wow. before. What a negative Nancy. Before you you're gonna you're gonna tell me that you weren't a fan of the forty eight frames per second in The Hobbit either with Peter Jackson. <laughs> I took a nap in that movie. I literally I was with a friend and I fell asleep and then when I, I walked out of Billy Lynn's long halftime walk, my wife and I were like, This is making good actors we like look bad. <laughs> Like Steve Martin is usually so charming and he looked like he was in that movie. He looked like he was in a community theater production because I don't think 120 frames per second is nice to actors. But that wasn't the point I was trying to make. The point I was trying to make is the interesting thing about Scorsese is Scorsese is obviously obsessed with vintage cinema. If you really look at The Aviator, there's a lot of work that they go into to recreating the, the mood and feel of certain cinematic periods when documenting them on film. And you can see certain indications that The Irishman is very much trying to replicate the precise mood and feel of what the cinema of a given time would feel like. And the interaction between that effect and the digital de-aging works better for me just on the trailers. It works better for me in The Irishman because the attempt to aesthetically capture a moment in time integrates well with that digital de-aging. The digital de-aging doesn't bother me at all in Gemini Man, but I just hate how much Gemini Man looks like something I shot on a Sony PD-150 that I can't get over it. You know, I just on the subject of the Irishman, <clears throat> there's so much to talk about. We had uh, so Emily Booter was there. She saw it. Uh, she covered Scorsese, Pacino, De Niro, and some of the producers discussing it afterwards at New York Film Festival, I believe. And that post and others are up on the site. We also have a post up on the site about uh, a long form interview Quentin Tarantino did with Martin Scorsese, which is just really interesting to read them discussing it. But all that said, I feel like it's really weird to look at a de-aged Robert De Niro or Al Pacino when I know exactly what they looked like when they were those ages and this is not what they looked like. And I just like particularly there's an image that keeps floating around and I'm sure it's very briefly used in the movie of De Niro in war. And I, I assume it's the character when he served – and I imagine, you know, the character's like in his 20s or something. And you just can't make, no matter how much de-aging you do, I don't think you can make a 70-year-old face look 20 years old. It just looks like it's mostly in shadow. It's like someone sanded the edges. The shape is still off. We, the mouth doesn't look right. Like, we've, we know what Robert De Niro's face looks like. And I guess then the question is like, well, what's the alternative? You cast someone else. You just don't use the flashback. Like maybe this is, as Scorsese said in the panel, it's a costly experiment just in terms of the, the what they had to do to achieve this. The shoot was was massive. The budget was huge. They had multiple cameras in order to do exactly what Charles was talking about. But what's the end result? Is it worth it? Does it does it create? I mean, I don't know yet, having not seen the movie. I just know from where I sit, having seen a lot of images and trailers, I just don't. That's not young Robert De Niro. That's old Robert De Niro with a special effect on him, and that's what it looks like to me. And it kind of takes me out of it. I'll be honest. Like, I mean, the the other factor being, and we have a post up about this too. They worked with um, posture coaches to help them move their bodies or hold their bodies differently for the different ages. And I'm really fascinated to see if that translates into something because 
one of the main ways people age beyond just their face is how their body moves, how their body holds up, how their body interacts with the world. So I'm sure this is they they have workarounds like body doubles. But imagine a scene of a 70 year old Robert De Niro in war charging into battle like it just doesn't work right like his body doesn't work that way anymore so first off uh, i enjoy the trailer immensely i am extraordinarily interested and excited for this for a couple of reasons the first one is of course is that it'll be nice to have like a scorsese gangster movie again just yeah just absolutely. flat out yes um and it's nice i think that this is <clears throat> if this movie is good which i think has every indication of being it'll also be nice to have a movie that we, we film nerds can pick apart, but also it's like something, it's one of those movies you can go home and like your family's also seen because again, we're talking Al Pacino, Scorsese directing, Robert De Niro. I mean, just like uh, everyone who you want to be in. That being said, I'm reminded of that in order for these techniques to work, of course, from, from the cinematographer perspective, right? Because you're also now in heavy VFX. Yeah, you do have to talk about light and shadow and a kind of a different thing. I bet that there's not going to be as much staying power on some of the shots as it could be because we're not looking at the actual actor's face. We're looking at the actor's face de-aged, as we've said, at some point, like 50 years. So what I'm a little worried about is getting that effect that we got in something like Rogue One, where, you know, they recreated Admiral Tarkin and it was past an uncanny valley. They recreated Princess Leia and it was past uncanny valley. Um... Again, this is a really, really incredible uh, and expensive experiment, and it's cool that we have movies like Irishman and Gemini Man who are who are trying to see that. Like, if the de aging process is going to work for an audience, but you know, my my kind of initial bat is that I like I like realism so much. Like, I like VFX not touching actors' faces so much that I'd be totally fine with having. 70-year-old Pacino and De Niro doing a gangster movie as 70 years old. And I'd be probably perfectly happy, and I think a lot of people would. I don't think that this in and of itself has to be about Jimmy Hoffa to get people inside the seats. I think that people are just happy to see kind of a quintessential staple. I mean, Joe Pesci's in it too, for heaven's sake. I mean, when's the last time I heard his voice? I'm so excited. I'm so excited because <laughs> it's just like, it's like, it's the, like the quintessential all-star cast that you've yeah. always wanted. This is something that across generations has been like, you know, we've thought about like Raging Bull and Heat and Goodfellas. And it's in that category again with Scorsese's eye and and Rodrigo uh, Prieto is his DP. And I'm like, I'm more excited about that than I am about the processes inside because it's just a quintessential gangster movie for me. Can I also, can I have a hot take about the economy here? <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> Do we want to why, touch why, please, why don't you? The thing this worries me about is, you know, we always talk about how AI is coming for all the apprentice jobs. Like in post production, AI is going to take over a lot of like the assistant editor jobs. And those assistant editor jobs are a lot of the ways that like we get new editors into the industry and we train them up on how to be good. Godfather 2, De Niro, largely got like. Like, a big part of launching his career was playing young Marlon Brando, right? We had old Marlon Brando, wow. and when they that cast... That is an amazing... That is an amazing point. So, there is a young actor who looks vaguely like Robert De Niro right now, who should be getting his big break playing young Robert De Niro in The Irishman, and then growing into a career. But, this is... Instead, we're hanging... And, I, like, I love De Niro. I love his, like, saying... Fuck him on news shows. I love every, like, I'm a De Niro fan. 
But frankly, there like there is some twenty seven year old who should have had that part maybe, and is gonna like is missing out on the opportunity to have a career launch where we could have another fifty years of those movies. And like, I that's and wait just to that to that point, I just want to bring up. I hadn't even thought about that, but I always my mind always goes to the place of like, wouldn't it be better if we were making room for new talent than just hanging on to old talent? Even when I love the old talent, but I hadn't even thought about the fact that. Godfather 2, where he played a young Marlon Brando. In the same Marlon movie, Brando Marlon Brando like, was in the movie. Perhaps the greatest. Yeah. yeah. And he's one of the, uh, Actually, Brando is not in Godfather He's 2. in the flashback. He was supposed to... There's a flashback, and he didn't... At the end of the movie, and <laughs> yeah. he didn't, he didn't come, famously. <laughs> but he was... People had just seen the movie. It's Marlon Brando. He won an Oscar for it, and he sent a fake American, uh, Native American up yeah. to accept it. Okay, fair Marlon Brando is Marlon Brando. And, like, and Robert De Niro... People don't know this was not Robert De Niro yet. Mean oh, no. Streets yeah. had happened, but he had not done Taxi Driver. He had not yet become Robert De Niro. Oh, yeah. That movie was a big step in that direction. Imagine having to fill the shoes. And I, I'm pretty sure De Niro won an Oscar for playing young Vito Corleone. Yeah. That's that's pretty crazy. No, I mean, this was a so, much bigger deal for his career than Mean Streets. Mean Streets was like legitimate for his career, but Godfather Two was the thing that launched De Niro into being De Niro. He was also excellent. Oh, he's phenomenal just, in that movie. You know, and, and but he's just he. Is there another Robert? The question always is, and this this is across all of Hollywood in every corner. Is there another X or you're not so and so? The answer would be. Well, maybe there isn't another Robert De Niro just hiding under a rock waiting to be found. But the problem is we don't know if we're not trying to look. A lot of times when they cast the young guy as the, you know, I mean, what did it think about Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade even like like River Phoenix, right? Yeah. Like he doesn't look exactly like Harrison Ford, but River Phoenix is, was cool and good and he was fine and we didn't. He was beyond fine. Can you he imagine had some swagger, River Phoenix. Yeah, can you imagine if we had to watch uh, 45-year-old Harrison Ford pretending to be 17-year-old Indiana Jones? Well, we did, remember? That was Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Yeah, I don't and, know. And we all saw it. Never... <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I yeah. <laughs> so that's the interesting thing for me. And, and let's also say with Gemini Man, there's a 17-year-old kid that could have played young Will Smith. And his name is Jaden Smith. <laughs> oh gosh! So, like in that no. case, in that case, Will Smith literally no, no, wait cost a his own son a job. Good. Then Will Smith did us all a favor. Did did everyone forget what was that sci-fi movie they did together? I did yeah. not forget. Right. That's exactly. The, um... So, uh, uh-uh. I do think that that's that's true to an extent. I do think that obviously this is still an expensive endeavor. So, I think that the positive side of it, especially since like I, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm working in the in the rat race of the new kind of handshake between like practical cinema and vfx is that i'm sure that as a result of this however there are potentially some 27 year old vfx artists who have just gotten their big break because they've gotten to edit de niro and pesci's or whoever else's faces i don't know because i'm not a cinematographer and never have been but i feel like whatever they had to do to make this work affects their abilities to do the kind of photography that you would normally be able to do. Well, no, I would actually say that it's the opposite of that. Like, if you watch The Departed, there's a bunch of scenes in The Departed where, you know, uh, you couldn't talk Jack Nicholson into doing young age makeup and he wasn't in the shape, so they literally had to light around him in flashbacks. And so 
in all of those flashbacks on The Departed, he's in silhouette because he's Jack Nicholson. There is no one who could play a young Jack Nicholson. Even Christian Slater couldn't quite do it as hard as he tried. So, like, they just <laughs> lit him in shadow. So this is actually sort of an interesting thing of saying, like, all right, cinematographer, design the shot to be whatever the shot you want it is to be and don't worry about hiding anything and we will fix it. Yeah, that's one point. But then I think there's two points and I think they're both true. That's the point about like how you like the environment maybe. But what about just like what eye light looks like when you have to think about, well, his eye space is going to be completely different because we have to sand the edges. Like eyes change so much and the surrounding skin of eyes is such a place well, and people actually yeah age as people that, like, age the like, sparkle in their eyes changes as their eye fills with more of that whatever that tissue is or if you get glaucoma well i i do think that i i, and I can't remember who was the cinematographer behind rogue one but i would i'm very curious to kind of see of all like movies Frazier, kind of see right? where that interaction yeah that sounds about right so yeah. i'd love to like kind of get his take on something like this because with someone like Rodrigo Prieto, whose work I adore, you know, he's done, um, he did Eight Mile, uh, Wolf of Wall Street, he did, uh, oh, he did Silence, so he's worked with Scorsese before, and I loved his work on Silence, um, but he, I think what I like about his work is that he knows how to kind of, he does hint for those, like, realism in camera, just gorgeous painting of frame sort of things that I really do appreciate, so this for me will be kind of the first movie I've seen of his where I am very conscious of what I've seen on screen, is that more VFX intensive inside an actor's face. Um, and so I do think that, yeah, there is a sort of, you are as a cinematographer, of course, having to compensate for the fact that what you're seeing, what you're lighting isn't going to be part of the fact, it's going to be part of the factor, but it's not going to be the ultimate factor of what actually winds up after post on the silver screen. You know, I'd much rather do, what, what I see in camera, I'd much rather get in camera which I know obviously for a lot of shoots isn't possible, but still it's, it's kind of just a new thinking as a cinematographer, like, okay, well it's no longer just like I'm in control of everything on frame here. And then we add some VFX later because there's an explosion that needs to be touched up or something. It's like, great. My actor's face and my talking about my lighting with my gaffer and everything has to change slightly because I also have to bring my VFX team into the table. And that can still be a very wonderful working relationship, but it's, it is a new kind of thing that I, I, you know, I, I think the, the, the old way is still a good way. So it's, you know, it's, like he said, a costly experiment moving in a new direction, combining teams and factors and extending careers or creating the uncanny valley. I mean, there's a million things to look for in this movie. I mean, so. everything's an influx. You know, I've never I've never been on set and I've you know, it's like when we talk about kind of like there should be a young actor playing Robert De Niro. That's that's potentially true. Uh, and I'll try to be nice to actors today. I'm just playing. I love you guys. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, that's very true. But at the same time, it's like, it's true. I've never, I've never seen, because I've never worked with film except for school. Uh, I've never, I've never met a camera loader before. Or I've never worked with a camera loader before. So I'm understanding that, like, the industry, especially in the digital era, being in such influx, yeah, there's stuff that has gone by the wayside. But also there's, there's stuff that pops up and it's popped up everywhere. So I, I do think that, in that kind of regard, economically, uh, there is a potential for a big film like this, especially with such an eye and attention, more to cinema, which I trust with Scorsese, rather than just, we wanted to do this because it's new, edgy, and whatever, whatever, and cut all the corners. Uh, I do believe that the, it balanced out in the end. I mean, I think it balanced out in terms of raw numbers. And I'm numbers excited to on... still see it. Yeah, I'm totally going to see it. And I think it balanced out on numbers spent on jobs. I just want to make sure that, like, we're also grooming young talent. 
like we're in a place where like the franchise matters more than the star these days. Yes. And uh, yep. I, you know, it, I, 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 I just hope that we're also making sure that like young actors who are good at stuff are, are mm-hmm. getting those small yeah, parts in routine. big movies that help them shine. I'm also really excited to Patreon. see Ray Romano in this because I think he's going to be great. Let's uh, let's on the subject of Ray Romano, of course. Let's segue to our next uh, to our next topic. So let's talk about. Last week we talked about Distribber. Uh, Distribber is an aggregator. Uh, I think somewhere between what you would say a dis- traditional distributor business model, but not a streaming platform. Something in between that connects filmmakers to places like Amazon and you know, video on demand platforms, iTunes, etc. Distributor mysteriously shuttered. We didn't really know the full story behind it. We just knew that they were not returning calls. Their Twitter account was gone. Their website was weird. Everything was off. We got a tip on the Indie Film Mogul podcast that they were going bankrupt. So we talked about it last week a little bit, uh, Charles and I, and we had a post up on No Film School about it. And in the intervening time one of our writers oakley anderson moore did digging and put together a really long and quality piece on the site called why distributor died and how you can deal with it and i highly recommend this because this was just some really good journalism i know it still exists in the world and she did a great job covering it as best as possible talking to people around it and it's it's kind of a big story and it's kind of complicated uh, a lot happened um distributor was moving along smoothly um it sort of combined with some other i'm trying to i'm trying really hard to come up with the cliff notes for this story it's challenging it combined with some other businesses ceos moved on to other things uh, the business model shifted. It almost became the very thing it uh, sought to destroy. What's the Star Wars meme? Can someone correct me there? But it eventually ended up depending on uh, it, income that it wasn't going to be able to get, and it folded. And the problem is, once it filed for bankruptcy, it basically left a skeleton crew to clean up the mess. And there's a ton of movies still out there that are generating income for distributor and filmmakers who aren't going to see any of the money from that. Um, And I guess to just kind of go back a second, distributor's model initially was that you paid a flat fee to be up on distributor. Whereas a lot of these other models are a a percentage, a cut of what you make. Um, What ended up happening is they had to shift their model over time and it just became unsustainable. So the post, kind of goes through all the details, takes us through the steps, but also talks about what does this mean? For a while, it felt like these aggregators were a friend to filmmakers, but it's starting to feel like maybe they're not, and maybe some of them prey on the um, the need and the weakness and the potential of a filmmaker. A long story short, distributor went bankrupt. Um, indie film hustles Alex Ferrari has said that his strategy is he's pulling his films from Amazon or any other platform that went up through Distributor. 
because he wants to have control over the movies and he doesn't want them to be out there generating income that he's never going to see, which makes sense. And frankly, I don't know if there's a better option for you if you have a film up somewhere through distributor than to pull it and just regain control and then kind of proceed from there. It even takes some time to pull them. Of course, you may not care. You may not be generating meaningful income. You may just want the movie out there. These are things that are every filmmaker has to decide. But as people get more and more into you know independent distribution models and there's more and more uh, things popping up that offer you these things, uh, distributor is far from the only one. It's definitely worth examining this as a case study and what can happen, what can go wrong, and what you should do if it does. It's terrifying. No, it is. I was fortunate in that the feature film I did, we had a deal with Gravitas Ventures, which is a distributor, and it was more more of a traditional relationship where it's a percentage, and they didn't just say, yeah, we'll get it up on all these things, give us a flat fee, and then you get to take the money from all the things. It was more like, that was my experience. So I don't have any firsthand experience I can speak to about working with an aggregator, but I think it's just becoming more and more commonplace. My picture also more more went out through Gravitas and in a traditional incentive deal, percentage. And I think one thing we really should talk about at this moment is the benefit of, a, over, of percentages over flat fees. So many people are like, why would I give up a percentage if it keeps making money forever and ever and ever? Why do I want to give up those percentages forever and ever and ever? And so a flat fee seems appealing because they're like, ooh, I pay once and then I get this service forever. But the purpose of a percentage is it's actually in your interest to give up that percentage because giving up that percentage incentivizes them to continue to work for you. If you are a small four-person company and you have one person who paid you $1,200 two years ago and you have someone who paid you $1,200 yesterday, you're incentivized by basic economics to work for the people who paid you money yesterday, right? Also might pay you more money tomorrow. Yes. The people who paid you a year ago may never will never pay you again. Yes. So it's like done and done. You collect the money, you move on. Well, also so that's you're incentivized. The distributor model, just to recap. Exactly. You're incentivized to work for the people who are doing so many projects, right? Like you're incentivized. Uh, you know, I knew a dude in L.A. who used to make six movies a year. They were all horror movies. He wrote them like in a. He 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 used to say, "I like to write them watching football," which is like not really <laughs> uh, the encouraging, like really focused on the screenplay thing um, that you're really looking for. Uh, but he. That's the kind of person that distributor is going to like work hardest for because they're getting fees from him six times a year. I, he didn't use distributor. He had another system worked out. He had a whole he had a whole machine going. Um, so I like in percentages. It's the whole argument they always make with the, when you're hiring a CEO, you want to give them a percentage of the company because you want them not to be working for their salary. You want them to be working to make that percentage of the company they are getting worth as much as possible. Because if they make the company uh, succeed, they're going to get that percentage. It's the same reason why this is all actually related to the whole agents and managers thing from earlier in the spring. Yeah, I, was, you I want, was thinking that too. You want your agent who's like, I'm only getting 15% of this deal, so I'm going to negotiate it from 100000 to 400000 because if I do that, instead of getting fifteen grand, i am getting sixty grand, and I can buy another Maserati. You don't want an agent who is only getting a flat fee because a flat fee, they're just not motivated to work for you as hard. So fundamentally, I think one thing that's wrong with distributor is that the flat fee model doesn't incentivize 
distributor to continue to do everything they possibly can. Like, uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't work in this scenario. There are things that work on a flat fee. There are totally things where you're like, okay, I'm going to pay a flat fee for this and I'm going to get a benefit from it. But I don't think any long-term situation is like this. I don't think a distribution situation is incentivized properly with a flat fee. I think that it, you you never would have seen something like this. And the flat fee is almost like an indication that they're not really interested in the success of a project. They're interested in sweeping up as many projects as they possibly can and, yes. and moving on. And I think that the success, the idea of having a distributor is that the distributor wants to put something into the project. Now, there's a lot of ways distributors screw filmmakers and films all different ways. There's a lot of shady distributors out there. They're, they'll do no, things like they'll say. No, <laughs> no <laughs> but <way>. Just like <laughs> there's a lot of agents who take advantage of these things. But look, the bottom line is like a distributor might say something like, um, you know, we're going to give you this percentage, but, and then there's all kinds of like fine print on, we're going to spend this much on advertising, but they're not really going to spend that much. We on, get on two first and class tickets to can every year that you're, you know, the, all of those. Right. They, yeah. They're going to, they're going to write in costs that then come out of your chunk that it, you just have to be like with all things in life, I guess you have to be careful. You have to read the details and you have to have a lawyer ideally. But I think that, or a rep, Someone else taking a percentage. <laughs> yeah. But I think that um, when it comes to the distributor model, yeah, I, I agree. It, there's a red flag to me almost immediately of like, so you give me this money, like say, I, I think there was even a rate in there. Say it's $1,200. Say, say you made your movie for a hundred grand, which isn't a lot. And say they basically bought your movie you know, for $1,200 and then they don't care anymore. And then your movie's out there and it's making you money. The dirty little secret is nowadays there's so much stuff streaming that one more project up there that no one's advertising that you got up through an aggregator, who's going to see it? Who's going to pay for it? How much money are you really going to net on a, on a streaming platform? I do have a pitch about this, though. So I'm here's my pitch. If you want to be randomly stumbled upon, because George is totally right. There's billions of things on the internet to stream. If no one's marketing it, if no one's getting trailers in front of eyeballs, if no one's getting a no film school article written about you, if, the, if you don't have a good publicist, nobody's going to see it. A distributor should be pushing it. But here's the exception. Obscure holiday movies. I swear to God, I was at someone's house for some weird-ass holiday party, and someone was like, ooh, we should play a holiday movie in the background. And I can't remember what holiday was. But, like, literally, we just looked through Amazon, found some random holiday movie. It was like a horror. It was a Thanksgiving-themed horror, horror movie. And we just, like, left it on in the background, and that person totally got money from our stream. So if I were an independent filmmaker who was interested in the, like, I'm going to make five films a year model... I would go out and I would do like a St. Patrick's Day horror movie. I would do <laughs> a Arbor Day horror movie. Why are you giving movie. this stuff away? This is gold. <laughs> I think a St. Patrick's Day movie is just The Irishman too. <laughs> that's a good. That's oh. the, the backwards segue. There you go. No, if somebody actually has data on that, I really want to find out if The Irishman spikes on St. Patty's Day. If like some proud Irish or the day after St. Patty's Day was when an Irishman is a little hungover from. That's true. I just want to go back real quick and just mention that there are no Irishmen in Irishman, by the way. Uh, De Niro is. None of the top actors are. So I I, I actually think De Niro is half. I think he is. I believe De Niro is half Irish as well. Yeah. 
Okay, um, never mind. We're good. What about? But it's uh, not. Yeah. It's cer- certainly not what he's famous for. Yes. Being. Um, I was gonna just just to put a button on on this, you know, with with streaming platforms and stuff. It's also worth keeping in mind for filmmakers out there that the chances that you're gonna make a lot of money once your movie is out in distribution through an aggregator are pretty slim. So it's more like you're trying to get eyeballs, and it's and it's a game of of that. Unless you have, you know, unless you get a big like upfront, you know, which they do sometimes, like they yeah. might pay you and these things happen but the days of the uh the bidding war between people in the theater at sundance are probably mostly gone but i'm not sure never i mean it's also funny because the last couple the the problem with the bidding war is like the bidding war hasn't just ended because there's so much content the bidding war has also ended because it doesn't allow people time to do due diligence and research like the the last right. big bidding war story was uh, the um, diary of Nat Turner, right? And that was yeah, and, a and huge you know what else? Bidding war story, and then you know within two weeks of that price, a whole bunch of stuff came out about the filmmaker that sunk its release. And so I think bidding yes. wars are also disappearing just because people are like, no, I I can wait and do my research. Let's do a little research on these people first. This week's episode of the No Film School podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot. This week, FilmTools is offering No Film School listeners 5% off qualifying purchases when they shop at FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code NFSPOD at checkout. That is N-F-S-P-O-D at checkout to get 5% off your purchases at FilmTools.com. Whether you need a new stinger, a GoPro, or a cart, make sure you head over to FilmTools.com and use code NFSPOD at checkout to get 5% off your next equipment purchase. Moving on. Moving on to tech news. So this is a, this is a bait and switch in tech news. I'm I officially told Jordan and George that we were going to be talking in tech news this week about the GoPro Hero Eight, but literally all I have to say about the GoPro Hero Eight is like, really, GoPro? That's all you can bring to the table? Do you guys still want to be a company? Um, like, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I was very happy you said that. I was going to be like, well, it's not particularly decisive, is it? If you if you have a seven already. Uh, cool. There's some new microphones apparently, but when's the last time you used your GoPro audio? Get out of here. Yeah, I mean they're trying to go after the <laughs> vlogger market, but I'm like, vloggers are all on Canon guys, and like if if they're if they're interested in weight, are they going to go GoPro? And and here's the thing, DJI. Look, look, filmmakers do use GoPros totally. Every every job I go out where I'm like, oh, this character's diving into the water. You know, we'll shoot the dive into the water on Alexa, but we'll have a couple GoPros underwater in case Frickin we happen to. Freaking hardcore walk. Henry, man. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. Hardcore Henry. But like, you know, what I need out of a GoPro is I need it to be really fucking easy to work with. And so the DJI Mm -hmm. in July came out with the Osmo Action, which has a front facing camera, which solves all of my problems with GoPro. I can I can pop on my trunks, jump in the pool and I can see what I'm framing as I'm framing it. If I'm like suction cupping it to the side of the pool, I can see my frame. How great Mm -hmm. is that? And then GoPro comes out four months later with a camera, and they're like, "Hey, you can uh, uh, you can use one of these accessory monitors to do that." And it's like, "But it's built into the Osmo Action, guys." 
I don't have to pay extra for it. It's just there. Oh, GoPro, get it together. <laughs> the question, you know, the question with, especially with, with more, uh, you know, because GoPro right now is the big kid on the block who's, I think, rested on their laurels, laurels a little bit because they are the household name. When we talk about the small cameras to mount anywhere, we say GoPro colloquially. Uh, now, I with having done a little bit with that latest DJI, by the way, I'm, I've been very, very impressed with it. But also, it's one, it's a question of of diminishing returns almost. What do I want my Hero Eight to do that my Hero Seven hasn't been able to do, or that my my DJI hasn't been able to do? At this point, we've been using GoPros in relatively the same sorts of philosophies for for such a good amount of time that it's just incremental. So I don't think if you have say a Hero Seven, of course. There isn't going to be, you're not, I don't think you're going to get really a decisive enough uh, change, certainly not in your image. Uh, and even in your functionality, of course, you're not going to get a decisive enough change to really sell that Hero 7 or just buy a Hero 8 outright. It's not going to decisively change the projects you are already doing with your GoPro. Now, yeah, it's cool that they have mounting brackets native uh, on it, that you don't have to put it inside a cage. But again, we've been doing that for so long and it's not been particularly complex in all those times. And even that change up comes with a set of setbacks. So I know that uh, it was way easier to put on filters uh, and other sort of adapters on with the Hero 7 and your older stuff that you had to put inside of, of your mounting bracket, inside your case. There is a different adapter thing you're going to need for your Hero 8 apparently. So right off the bat, you're yep. like, okay, well, this doesn't actually you know, decisively change the game for me, uh, you know, and I'm still going to do all the same things that I'm doing. Uh, and again, I'm not really getting that different of an image quality. Uh, I mean, audio maybe, but I don't think that that would be the deciding factor, certainly not on the gigs that I take GoPros on. Is GoPro maybe not for pros as much? Is that kind of what's happening? Like, is GoPro I mean, never, maybe... It's, it's never been for pros. It's always been... Well, it's yeah. really, you, you know who the pro is Is it in GoPro? more like Go Not Pro? No. Ooh. <laughs> good setup. Well done. No, the, the pro in GoPro is for the professional sports person. GoPro is like, uh, yeah. go pro, become a pro surfer, become a pro skateboarder, make a living as a mountain biker by rigging a GoPro to your thing and then doing crazy yes. stunts. That's the yes. pro in GoPro is not pro filmmaker. The pro in GoPro is pro yes. sports person. We talk about it in filmmaking because you can get a halo. GoPro has ridden a little bit on and they also use it on Hollywood productions. And we're starting to see a movement away from that as other action cams. You know, when you need that fifth camera, when you need that like, oh, I'm rigging up a car shoot and I need like seven GoPros inside a right. camera. We still call it GoPro, speaking to Jordan's point, like they still are, is the name. But I definitely mm -hmm. suspect that sometimes people are like, oh, we're going to rig that car with eight, eight GoPros. But when you walk over to the car, it's actually Osmo Actions or it's actually those ye yep. 4Ks because other cameras are starting to either offer a price benefit or, an, or a feature benefit that GoPros not. But yeah, I mean, GoPro is not, we are such an, a drop in, in anybody's market. Filmmaking is such a drop in the bucket. Uh-oh. Yeah, and <laughs> the nice thing is, is, besides, right, to the point, it's like, 
GoPro never had to really market itself specially for a Hollywood Red Bull, angle. Right? We completely co-opted it, which was fine because, again, the flaw... I mean, it's still a crazy thing to think about. Cool. I have a really small camera that I can legitimately throw off a building and I still have the shot because <laughs> at the very least, the SD card survived. So there's, there's something really, really exciting about that. There's something cool. But, you know, you look at the actual specs of any sort of GoPro and you're still going to be dealing with... I mean, you know, they're not pushing for like 12 bit raw inside my hero Invicta or something like that. They don't need right. to. It's a 4K, right. 60 frames per second, which is pretty awesome, right? The GoPro, the Hero 8 now, like it says it has like better HDR. But again, we've been shooting, working with GoPro and all these kind of things. I think the GoPro footage has looked fine for a while. Everyone has. I've not really watched. I mean, I mean, you know, you see GoPro footage and like whether it's a barrel sequence in the first Hobbit movie. <sighs> Or, of course, again, Hardcore Henry shot itself, I think, on Hero 3s, for heaven's sake, because it's a 2015 movie. Um, but so you watch it, like, okay, cool. Looks like they shot this with GoPros, and it completely works. And and so there's some things where you're just like, it's GoPro Relax. You're not going to lose a lot in translation. You're not going to lose an audience. And sometimes, like, the, your filmmaking snobbery has to be set aside by the wayside when you realize like how small the camera. So again, it's just a lot of diminishing returns for me. I'm pretty happy with the image. There's other stuff coming out. Uh, as we talked about, that's been exciting and cool. Maybe some more stuff will be marketed specifically, I suppose, towards the whole cinematic Hollywood experience, but I I'm content. So, you know, GoPro, it's not really enticing for me to get a Hero 8 over anything else I have, but, you know, it's like, cool. I can still do the same stuff. So instead of talking about GoPro, which actually then we talked about GoPro plenty, I was actually going to talk about another thing that came out this this week, which I do think is a little bit more oh. relevant <laughs> to filmmakers. What? Cool. Which is the Narbox 2.0. Uh, so if you guys don't know Narbox, Narbox, uh, the original Narbox, and that's Nar with a G, G-N-A-R, was originally like an action sports photographer's tool, hence Nar. I think that's a thing like snowboarders gnarly. say. Yeah, gnarly or like, like gnarly? shred the Nar or something. I don't I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm not an action sports guy. <laughs> oh but my gosh. Yeah. Uh. I'm a dad. I can do what I want. Um, so the original Narbox was a hard drive with an SD reader built in. And what was, you know, what was exciting about that is like, look, on any big show, I am setting up a laptop. But sometimes you are just like run and gunning. You want to be able to do your backups really fast. The idea of like a whole big thing is a big hassle. And the original Narbox is a great thing for still photographers, but it actually wasn't fast enough for filmmakers because our SD cards get really full of all that 4K video and it doesn't mm -hmm. it doesn't download fast enough. So Narbox 2.0 just came out like literally Wednesday of this week. And we saw one back at NAB in April, but now they're out in the field and I've gotten a chance to play with one a little bit. And they're all SSD which means they're finally fast enough that they're a reasonable download time for filmmakers. Um, they have an interchangeable battery. So if the battery dies, you can swap it for a different battery. So it has like an oh, internal battery you can nice. change. Very um, nice. And it's all USB-C now. And here's the key feature. So first off, it does check some verified backups, which means not only does it back up, like you stick in your SD card, but it can, and as it makes a copy, it checks the copy to make sure it's accurate. But it does something even cooler than that. There's a USB-C port, and it will do multiple simultaneous backups, which means I take like a Samsung T5 SSD or even like a thumb drive, and I stick it in the USB port, and it will download from the SD card to the Narbox and to your other hard drive at the same time, which is super great. Like multiple simultaneous That's backups awesome. without popping up my laptop. And, you know, the example I think of is like how many times you've been out like, I'm shooting B-roll in the field. 
world. I'm like wandering around a swamp or whatever. And like, you know, you fill up mm-hmm. your card, you just reach in your pocket, stick this in the slot, hit the backup button. And all of the sudden it is backed up. Previously, what's happened in my career in most of those jobs is I'm just like, okay, I'll download the card in my office. And I'm assuming it's going to be fine between here and the office. But I would feel so much better if I was able to download in the field without dragging my laptop and hard drives around. And the multiple copies feature is like, I actually, I don't know if they're going to be annoyed if I say this, but whatever. Like, this was supposed to come out a couple weeks ago, and they emailed me uh, from Narbox about the announcement. And they were like, we're pushing the announcement to make sure multiple copy is working before we announce. I don't know. Maybe that's going to get me in trouble with them. Sorry, Narbox. But, like... I think it was really smart to wait until they could announce multiple copy because especially for filmmakers, multiple copy is the deal. Um, Yeah. I just wanted to bring up, there's a comment already on the post, which hasn't been up for very long. Nice design and simple interface, but the price will convince most of us to haul a laptop and cheaper SSDs for backup. But you just kind of laid out a scenario where it's like, you don't want to bring a laptop and cheaper SSDs with you. Yeah. Like you're shooting on the go, you just want your po- your camera, you don't want and something in your pocket, right? Yeah. So like this is a this is a specific use case if you can afford it, right? I also like for me the price is six hundred dollars. Like yes, that is a lot of money, but it is less than the three thousand dollars many of us buy our laptops for. Like if we're buying a Surface Book or if we're buying a MacBook Pro, and for certain kind of jobs I've done. Like, there are so many jobs where I'm like, okay, we're going out today and we're just shooting, like, B-roll and establishers. We're out in the woods. We're trying to get, like, whatever stuff. We're running around super fast. And honestly, the fact that it's battery-powered and the fact that, like, I could just, like, rubber band it together with a Samsung T5 and do the download while we're moving, you know, and then all of a sudden, instead of waiting on the download before we get back in the truck, we're just, like, in the in the Land Cruiser doing the download Mm-hmm. off the battery and I don't have to like try and keep the laptop open and worry if the drives are ejecting themselves. I can just like rubber band it all together and go. Also, you can use a yeah. CFA, uh, uh, you can use it with a CFast reader. It, because it's USB-C, you could probably even use it with a red mini mag reader if you if you used, you know, you could I actually kind of I'm going to try that next. I I I'm I've been playing with one they loaned me. I'm going to US I have a USB-C red mini mag reader i'm gonna rubber band it all together and try it as a field download for that because i'm feels like a good tool for someone who's documentary right for a documentary it's certain oh yeah oh oh my god how did i not think about that example i remember so clearly a buddy of mine that's that's actually exactly what i was gonna say yeah yeah my buddy was going to afghanistan to do a job and he's like what do i do the power keeps cutting in and out in afghanistan in the place where i'm going to stay like power is not reliable how would you recommend i back up my footage holy shit narbox with its battery charging like even if you have power you leave it charging and when the power cuts out the battery kicks in yeah i think there are a lot of scenarios would would i if i wanted to save every penny just drag drag the laptop to set sure and there's many jobs where you can. And there's many jobs where, like, if I'm shooting Alexa, the one terabyte will fill up really fast. But I think that this is fun. This, the multi-copy backup, the external hard drive features make it interesting for certain filmmaking applications in a way I think the Narbox one was just too slow for filmmakers. Yeah, I think that the answer with the Narbox here, as with, with all pieces of gear, is is... Your scope of your project is going to determine if this is most advantageous to you in terms of budget and in terms of of what you're going to get out of it. So, yeah, if you're shooting in Afghanistan, right, if you're shooting Planet Earth 3, if you're shooting in the sticks of Hicktown, Illinois, or Colorado, 
filming Buffalo, let's say, <laughs> and uh, and power is not a reliable thing. And also on top of that, you want to make sure that your footage is backed up in the field so you don't have to worry about the the scary rides back where there might be a bump and before you know it, you've disconnected one of your hard drives and your laptop only has an hour and a half of power. We've all done those before. And yeah, you have the, you have the budget and the scope to to compensate for this. Yeah, I think that it is a very wise purchase for production to make. That documentary style shooting is going to find this extremely advantageous. Um, and if not, if it's something that's of course not in your budget, not in your range, then yeah, we're going to keep doing the, the the same systems that we built up and praying that something doesn't get knocked out of whack. Because yeah, you know, five hundred dollars for two hundred fifty nine uh, fifty six gigabytes. I'm sorry of of backup storage, and even with all the checksums and stuff, sometimes just isn't something that production's going to fly for. So all all within the prudence of whatever that production is. This is a obviously really really good device for those sorts of, of productions that are going to need it. If you're actually getting onto your mid-tier and top-tier documentary, like documentary is all I'm thinking about because how many times have we, I mean, even not just documentary, of course, but how many times in documentary, nature documentary, have you been out in the field and power isn't an option and you are planning with your people how much footage we can actually shoot before we have to go back and how much time we're going to be actually out with our batteries and how many batteries we have and all the icks and isms that go into planning shoots like that when you're out in the sticks. So oh, yeah. And you're if like, you're okay, on a production, so I've got a power the, inverter for the truck. If we leave the truck on, mm -hmm. we can use the power inverter to power the laptop to do the download. But then, like, do we wait longer to do the download here? Do we go to the next location and download right. while we're shooting? Right. Whereas this, it's just like four rubber bands. You have a card reader on one side. You have a, 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 a T5 drive on the other. You hold it together with a bunch of bungees and you can leave it in your backpack and use the battery power. And do the download without even having to worry about it. And then you're moving on to other uh, things. So I think there's certain, yeah, it is too expensive for certain workflows. It is a very affordable solution for certain other workflows. Yeah, it's certainly worth the headache if, if, you're, if, you're, if your production uh, is, is right for it. The, the last thing I wanted to point out is, so it's fully functional without tethering to your phone. But if you tether it to your phone over, I think, Wi-Fi or maybe Bluetooth, I don't remember, there's an app that lets you preview the media that's on the device, which doesn't just play H.265 and H.264, it'll also play ProRes files. So if you're out, like, shooting Curious. Blackmagic Pocket and you're shooting ProRes to a CFast card and then you use the Narbox to download your CFast cards, you can play those ProRes files on your phone and then delete them from your phone to clear up room in your Narbox, which I think is a is a really nifty... I was very impressed by that because I was like, ooh. So there's a there's That's a cool. way that... That is awesome. Because like your phone can't play ProRes. So that means the Narbox mm -hmm. is effectually playing ProRes and then streaming it to your phone, which I think is like pretty sophisticated. So I think for me, I don't feel like the price is out of alignment with what it's offering. Um, but again, if you already own a laptop and if the production is in a place where there's going to be a table and an outlet, um, then, then by all means. But like... Sometimes you're just not shooting where there's a table and an outlet. Our Ask No Film School this week is kind of interesting, different, um, a little more general. Sorry, uh, a little more general um, from Andrew Toe, I think that's, or Tao. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Uh, he emailed us at um, editor at nofilmschool.com. Um, longtime listener, super fan, um, huge gearhead, stuck between videographer, DP, cameraman. Working on films and proof of concepts a lot lately, but not enough to fully grab all the education for everything. Is there a book, parentheses, yes, I'll be getting Charles's new book, ha, huh? 
YouTube channels, podcasts, or whatever to learn everything about light and cameras, DIT and everything around that mostly, but also the structure of film from producer to delivering final project to a studio. I'm a sucker to know a lot of things better and understand. Sorry for paraphrasing the email. So he really just wants, um, I think. I want to know everything. I think it's a great question. Everything. I think it's a great question because it's focused on, hey, what are your favorite, um, you know, educational resources, single books, single podcasts? Like, where do you think is a good place to just kind of get an overview of everything? And I think we should make as a rule, we're not going to say the No Film School podcast or NoFilmSchool.com because obviously that's a great answer, but, you know, we're biased. Oh, Um, no, I think that's okay. I hate those guys. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but like look there's uh there's so many resources and sometimes i'll just kick it off sometimes people say no film school sort of uh an aggregator of content from around the internet and one of the reasons we like to do that is because there's a lot of great people writing great stuff about filmmaking on every level we can't cover it all we see it somewhere we want to get it up and cover it too um sometimes we initiate our own educational content but Um, In terms of just talking about the things we felt we learned the most about the process from, um, I really like, and this is a little esoteric and not as much on point with lighting, for example, or being a DIT, because I haven't done those things. There's a book I really liked called How to Write Sequences, and it was like a sequence method writing book, and it really helped me grasp the concept of the feature film structure. And it helped me from, from understanding pacing, not just from a writing perspective, but like importance. And when I watch movies and when people break down movies, I just think I understood the blueprint after I really got to know that book. Um, and the other one that I love is uh, it's by Bruce Block. Yeah. Did you read this one? The visual yeah, you story. Did? There you go. Yeah. The visual story by Bruce Block um, I, th- I had a feeling you would have because I think it's big in the USC circle, but um, it is just the best in terms of breaking down the theory and the practice of how to tell a story visually. Um, all the different tools at your disposal that you didn't even know were right in front of you when you shoot a scene uh, from movement to contrast to lines to colors to just the building blocks of visual storytelling. And it's all there and it's excellent. And I guess the reason I point those two things is because those are the, I feel like that's just the driving force behind any content you create should be like the best possible way to tell a story. So I pick two things that just to me really help me understand what story structure at like its most visual and verbal, like, boiling it down. Those are my answers. First off, the quintessential book I got in film school, and I think it's it's one of the most common. I mean, you see it in every single apartment of people who like were fresh out ever. Uh, but if you haven't, if you don't have that beautiful blue book, uh, Shot by Shot, uh, I think uh, Stephen Katz, uh, then that's that's a huge resource. And that's that's something that like you can see visually. There's really, really like nice kind of like easy simplistic drawings explaining everything how do i how do i craft a scene quite frankly and especially as a cinematographer or director that is a kind of thing which i mean there's just so much visual language that we're just not akin to and even stuff that as a professional you just need to be reminded of all the time so that's been in terms of reading material very important um since i work primarily as a cinematographer 
uh, and uh, I work in the independent world, there are a ton of online resources, video and reading format. First off, uh, there is a blog uh, that is special, especially for camera assistants, but I think anyone inside camera world needs to read it called The Black and Blue. Uh, it's tips for camera assistants, but it's it's created by this guy who at the time, I mean, maybe he's moved on now, but at the time he was a second AC. And it is like the most well-presented pragmatic advice for just navigating the world of camera and then from there navigating the world of set and movies. So all the questions you wanted to ask as an AC, but you were too afraid to ask, how do I actually swing a lens, for instance? What does it mean when I'm actually cleaning a lens? Uh, how do I make marks? What's an efficient usage of my time? Uh, how do I bump myself up to a different rank if I want to? Uh, how do I get on a gig? That sort of stuff. Uh, this is like, that blog is wonderful. It's just absolutely great. And I would completely recommend it. Uh, yeah, pass I that, actually just two just, more. Just I, second, second. Oh, you know what? Yeah. That, that blog is great. We've linked to stuff. Um, it just... I look at it often because I just think, I don't know how active it is. I look, I find old posts on there and I think we need to like repost to that or relink it just because it's a great yeah. resource. It's amazing. It's really easy to get into like the whole visualization part of cinematography, but there is a pragmatic bend too. The fact of the matter is that you have to know how the camera works. Yep. Like you, you just have to know how to change, you know, you can't rely on your camera operator if you have a camera operator and most cinematographers uh, on the independent level are also shooting. So the fact of the matter is you need to know about your camera, how it works, how it interacts. So besides that, just two more. Um, Tom Antos, I use his LUTs a lot in, in much of my works and his cinematography channel on YouTube has been immensely helpful for all your icks and isms if you want he talks about gear a lot so that's really nice if you're not using no film school to talk about gear but also just like tutorial tips on what about night lighting or shadow crafting or or how to make a noir film that sort of stuff just and he, he has a very good hands-on approach or anamorphic lenses a very important one because you'll always hear people talk about anamorphic lenses but you might not know where to go to actually see if that's something that may be something considered for your project and last thing especially when i was fresh out and even in film school was film riot uh, was a wonderful, wonderful YouTube channel for like the independent, like new to filmmaking kind of guys. Those guys will give you the crash course on how do you make a short film? And when you make a short film, how do you make a short film that doesn't suck? What does that mean for lighting? What does that mean for, for camera movement? All the icks and isms again on that visual language that you're just building up in real time. Uh, and, and as a professional, again, just absolutely wonderful reminders. So Film Riot has always been really easy, really digestible, digestible. They've been very fun as well. Uh, and so they've been immensely helpful in kind of me shaping myself as a cinematographer. So those are all really, really crack resources if you're a filmmaker. Awesome. These are great. I feel like some of these I haven't heard of and I want to dig into. So I'm only going to do books. Uh, I, I, I like books. I'm a big, I, I like, I still buy physical books. I've re I read some stuff on Kindle, but I'm a big physical book person. So I'm going to, I'm going to do four books. None of them are the three books I wrote, the Urban Biking Handbook, Business and Entrepreneurship for Filmmakers and Color Grading 101. Those are all great books, but I'm not going to plug them. But I'm going to do these four books super fast to take up the same time others took on two books. You got to read, uh, uh, McKee's story. Uh, whether or not you agree with everything that McKee argues about story, it is the lingua franca of Hollywood. 
you will end up in conversations with other collaborators using terms from McKee's story. It is probably the most widely read book on story in the industry. And like, there's certainly stuff in there you're free to disagree with, but it's really good to have a basic understanding of the same terms everybody else is using. Uh, there's a book I love called The Filmmaker's Handbook. I read it end to end in the 90s. And uh, the goal of the filmmaker's handbook is to try and cover everything. It's more technically focused. It's more like, and then you'll go through this step of the process and then this step. And it's not really artistically focused, but there's a bevy of great info in there I think is really worth knowing. Uh, if you, you mentioned cinematography and lighting specifically in there, the Harry C. Box book, The Set Lighting Handbook, it's just the tools of set lighting. But, oh, my God, it's so good. You get to the end of that book and you're like, oh, yeah, I feel like I have a real handle on, like, most of the tools I'm going to see on set and what they're going to do. Um, and those were the first three. And there was a fourth. And that is Keith Johnstone's Impro. Uh, this is not a book on filmmaking. This is a book on improvisation from one of the original people in the 60s and 70s that really started launching the concept of improvisational theater it's sort of a foundational text in improv and uh i think of all the books that have influenced like my craft as a filmmaker his concepts of game his concepts of status his his thoughts on how people interact and how you how you how you identify the truthfulness of a moment uh stick with me so improv key impro he he says impro not improv because canada and uh, <laughs> Keith Johnstone. And, uh, of course, please keep coming back to No Film School. I hope we can address your ongoing questions with our content. It's great to hear from people about what they wish we were talking about more. And don't hesitate mm -hmm. to email at editor at nofilmschool.com because if there's specific things you wish the site was covering in more detail, we actually have a post on being a DIT, but we could always update it. Um, if you feel there's things missing. So don't hesitate to reach out with questions or thoughts. So I'm Charles Hain. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hain. I'm, I'm way more engaged in Twitter than I used to be. You can always reach out to me with questions there. Uh, we answer. We also answer a lot of our Ask No Film School questions from the boards. Uh, you can check out my books, Business and Entrepreneurship, for filmmakers or color and color grading 101 both of which are out from focal press i also have a whole other podcast called the week in film tech weekinfilmtech.com which is just tech news and nothing else so if you are a tech weenie that is a good one for you and of course i write stuff on no film school so you can check out all of my stuff there i'm george edelman uh editor-in-chief at no film school you can find me on twitter at george edelman you can email me at editor at nofilmschool.com and uh, keep coming to No Film School and, you know, let us know what you want to see more of. Thanks, No Film School, so much. I love always being back on the podcast with you guys. We're too much fun. Um, if you'd like to follow me along, my name is Jordan Pacheco. You can follow me along on Instagram at jpachecofilms or my website, jpachecofilms.com. Thanks so much. Awesome. See everybody next week.